You know, I've been down here for so long that I almost completely forgot what personal hygiene really means. Not that I have a lot of options, considering I get to bathe in fire and brimstone all the time. But for the rest of you, there's Bruges. Bruges is an electric toothbrush that will change the way you think about brushing your teeth. With powerful sonic technology and ultra-gentle bristles, the Bruges redefines what it means to have super clean teeth. It's like that feeling you have when you just left the dentist. A fresh, whole mouth clean every single day. Right now, our listeners get 15% off their total purchase with code POD15. Follow the link on our social media feeds and enter the code POD15 to get your exclusive discount and upgrade to your oral care routine. And if you're wondering why it's called Bruges, that's because it's got that U with the two dots on top of it. Just, just so we're clear there. Abandon all remote controls. Ye who enter here. This is Telehell. Some people will believe anything that they're told. Whether it be a made-for-TV promise about the wonders of a certain miracle product sold during infomercials, to people spouting random, unvetted opinions on major issues of the day as though it was the gospel truth. Of course, what truths are being told depends on whoever it is that does the preaching. Back in television's infancy, those who told the truth were people who you usually saw during the dinner hour. People like Walter Cronkite, Chet Huntley, David Brinkley, Frank Reynolds, Peter Jennings, etc. But sometimes, whenever one tries to raise the levels of integrity at certain organizations, it's only a matter of time until there's a bit of a lapse in quality control. This is where it happens. Where Geraldo happens five times each week. He came out and he insulted me, I want to get some instructions. But where Geraldo really happens is out on the streets. Down so when it's time for Geraldo the show, stand by to roll. Geraldo the man is ready. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Geraldo. If you ever wanted to know where TV news crossed the barrier between integrity and sensationalism, today's subject may not be the first barrier to have broken in that regard, but it's certainly one of the more notorious ones we could find in Telehell. In 1943, America was in the thick of World War II. The nation's men were at war, the nation's women were riveting airplane parts and playing baseball. And on the 4th of July of that year, a woman of Jewish descent and a man of Hispanic descent helped spawn their first son, named Gerald. Few knew back then what baby Gerald would eventually turn out to be. By the time he reached college, it seemed as though young Gerald would have a career in practicing law, which he was able to do thanks to passing the New York City Bar Exam in 1969. Afterwards, Gerald used his newfound law degree to fight for what was right, especially among people of his Hispanic heritage. It was thanks to his activism with the Puerto Rican group, The Young Lords, that Gerald was able to catch the attention of an up-and-coming TV pioneer, TV news producer Al Primo. Primo was the man who, among many achievements, practically invented what we now know 
as the eyewitness news format seen around the world. A format where news wasn't just spoken at you, but done so in a way that actually engaged the viewer's interest instead of just informing them. After trying out the format in a number of cities in the 1960s, Primo felt the time had come to try out the format in the biggest media market of them all, New York City. Suffice to say, it took off almost immediately. As Eyewitness News was beginning to take shape in New York, Primo was looking for a group of young reporters to help establish a rapport with a young audience who probably didn't care about TV news. In 1970, Primo wanted to hire young Gerald to be one of those reporters. But because of how diverse the demographics of the city was, even back then, Primo asked Gerald to change his name to better reflect his Latinx heritage, and also to appeal to that particular audience. After a little back and forth, young Gerald ultimately decided to put a Latin slant on his current name, and would henceforth be known as Geraldo Rivera. I first heard of this big place with the pretty sounding name because of a call I received from a member of the Willowbrook staff, a Dr. Michael Wilkins. The doctor told me he'd just been fired because he'd been urging parents with children in one of the buildings, building number six, to organize so they could more effectively demand improved conditions for their children. The doctor invited me to see the conditions he was talking about, so unannounced and unexpected by the school administration, we toured building number six. While reporting at WABC Television, Geraldo broke a lot of ground while breaking the news. Most notably, an expose on the living conditions of the mentally challenged at the long-closed Willowbrook State School. A tragedy of such magnitude that John Lennon and Yoko Ono, along with Geraldo, helped put on a benefit concert for Willowbrook's victims called One to One. And don't worry, Geraldo didn't sing in it, he just helped produce the concert. Nothing else. Willowbrook and a number of other stories at WABC wound up catching the attention of somebody we've covered here before, another TV news super producer in the form of Rune Arledge. Arledge hired Rivera to become a national correspondent for ABC News. While there, Geraldo covered just about everything, from the death of Elvis Presley to the rise of AIDS, and yes, even the practice of coursing in greyhound races. It's called coursing. C-O-U-R-S-I-N-G, and it's the grim side of greyhound racing. All seemed to have gone well for Geraldo until 1985, when a story one of his ABC News colleagues produced about a supposed relationship between Marilyn Monroe and both JFK and Brother Bobby wound up getting shelved due to network politics, figuratively and literally considering Arledge was a friend of a friend of the Kennedy family. Outraged, Rivera protested the move to Arledge. And after a series of more network politicking, Rivera either quit or was fired from ABC News in 1985, depending on which version of the full story you hear it from. Incidentally, according to Rune Arledge's memoirs, Rivera wound up losing his job because he failed to sign one of his network contracts, making the dismissal all the more easier to do. But I digress. Rivera's loss turned out to be ABC's gain, as the ratings for the shows he appeared the most on, including 2020 and Nightline, wound up spiking upward after his departure, thus ending Act 1 of his career. But when one faces a midlife crisis in any walk of life, let alone on television, one has to decide quickly what their next move will be. In Geraldo's case, would he try to continue his career as a somewhat respected yet still sensationalistic journalist at one of the other networks, or 
would Rivera do what many others have done and totally reinvent their career from the ground up? In the case of one moment, he kinda did both. And on that note, it's time for me to slip into my old-timey 1920s voice. Dateline Chicago, the 1920s. Notorious gangster Al Capone was in the middle of a decades-long rampage against the city thanks to his ring of organized crime. He was still listed on the FBI's most wanted list, transported and sold alcohol during the Prohibition era, planned the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and was eventually indicted and convicted of income tax evasion in 1931. In 1939, he was released from Alcatraz prison on humanitarian grounds due to acutely advancing syphilis. Should have kept his pen out of the inkwell there. He died on January 25th, 1947 in his home in Palm Island, Florida from cardiac arrest after suffering a stroke the week after his 48th birthday. Capone had previously housed his headquarters at the nearby Metropole Hotel in Chicago, but in July 1928 moved to a suite at the Lexington Hotel, also in Chicago. Capone ran his various enterprises from this hotel until his arrest in 1931. A construction company in the 1980s planned a renovation of the Lexington Hotel, and while surveying the building, discovered a shooting range and a series of secret tunnels, including one hidden behind Capone's medicine cabinet. These tunnels connected taverns and brothels to provide an elaborate potential escape route in case of a police raid. These discoveries led to the further investigation of a hotel, notably by researcher Harold Rubin. Rumors said Capone had kept a very secret vault beneath the hotel to hold some of his wealth, but the details of what was concealed inside the vault would not be known until 19 1986, when a couple of TV executives felt that opening the vaults would become a surefire ratings bonanza. <laughs> God, man, that old-timey voice can give your throat a hernia. Anyway, the production company that was willing to take on such an unusual endeavor was a Chicago-based media empire known as Tribune Broadcasting. Once the owner of the top independent TV stations in America, its entertainment division was up and coming in the world of syndication. The biggest moves it made during its early years was luring Siskel and Ebert away from PBS and also acquiring the rights to the hippest trip in America, Soul Train. But those were merely acquisitions. The next step for Tribune to become a leader in syndication was to have original programming under its belt. By sheer happenstance, both the Tribune Company and the hotel where Al Capone kept his vault have one city in common. My kind of town, Chicago! So now, as is the case in journalism's five W's, we have the what, Al Capone's vault, the where, Chicago, and the why, because opening a criminal's vault on nationally syndicated television seems to be a surefire ratings grabber. Now all that was needed was a who to help guide us through it all. With his career in doubt after leaving ABC News, it seemed as though Geraldo was willing to do just about anything to get back on television. Fortunately, with all the years of exposés he logged under his belt, it seemed like a natural match for him to be the master of ceremonies on what was sure to be a major television event. So, he agreed to do it. We now have the who, what, where, and why. All that's missing is a when. The answer to that fifth W will be revealed... After the break... 
George Newman. He starts where the others stop. Sex with furniture. What do you think? The world watched in amazement as he unlocked the mysteries of Al Capone's glove compartment. Uh-huh. Roadmaps! He blew the lid off oh, Satanism. Look, all I was trying to say... Oh, was... shut up, you pinhead! You make me sick! Sometimes shocking, always controversial, he deals with topics that the other talk shows are afraid to touch. He pries, he pokes, he digs deep. He gets the answers, he gets the facts, and most of all, he gets the ratings. Lesbian Nazi hookers abducted by UFOs and forced into weight loss programs. All this week on Town Talk. Telehell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives, the Internet's premier place for a lot of nostalgia from the 80s, 90s, and even the present. And that includes some vintage commercials, like this. They said we could get our money back. I think it's a ripoff. Fighting for the underdog may be old-fashioned, but it's still in style at Eyewitness News. Just ignore it. Open up in the name of Eyewitness News. Give these folks their money back. Watch Marvin Zindler on Eyewitness News. He takes you to the heart of the news. He's gone. And we didn't even get a chance to thank him. Say, who was that man? Hi-ho, Want to watch more retro goodies? Head to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives. Or you can follow him on Facebook, also at Dave's Archives. And now, let's take a look at some terrible television. To answer that question about that fifth W, when? April 21st, 1986. Chernobyl was just five days away from making Three Mile Island feel much better about itself. The Chicago Bears were riding high as that year's football champs. And at 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Central, that toddlin' town was about to become the spotlight of one of the most unusual events in TV history. I'm Geraldo Rivera, and you're about to witness a live television event. A massive concrete vault has been discovered. Some think it belonged to none other than the notorious Al Capone. Well, tonight, for the first time, that vault is going to be open live. And with that much of an introduction in mind, there's no getting off the ride. And of course, what would some good old-fashioned grave robbing be without corporate sponsors to help fund the enterprise? Brought to you by Stroh's and Strohlite. Now you're talking good times and Stroh's is spoken here. And by the Hyatt Regency of Chicago. That's not necessarily a complaint about the show, by the way. I just kind of find it odd that anybody would want to sponsor something like this. But now that we got that out of the way, let's let Geraldo do some scene setting for you. Directly beneath me, a massive concrete chamber has been discovered, and there is evidence to suggest that that vault once belonged to Al Capone, the richest and most powerful gangster of his time. Now what, if anything, that vault contains, we don't know. This is an adventure you and I are going to be taking together, because one way or the other, the mystery is going to be solved tonight. We're going to break open that vault, and we're going to step inside. We're then treated to the first of what I'm certain will be many montages depicting the history of long ago. The kind of montage that would make me slip back into my 1920s voice, but my throat is still kind of going through rehab at the moment. 
we get the usual flowery setup to what led us to present day. And for those who wanted to know what life was like back then, at least it satisfied the history buffs before the History Channel could ever exist. We have Chicago in the Roaring Twenties. It's a history written with the rapid fire of Tommy guns, held by gangsters like Keanu Banya, Jaime Weiss, Frank Nitti, and of course the ruthless and cunning Scarface Al Capone. And to be fair, this is a two-hour program. If they were to open up the vault right away, this show would be over in about six minutes. So of course, there has to be some padding involved. And for the sake of this being a live TV program, it would be nice to have a stopgap or two. Such as... these... people. Capone was an evil man. He seemed like, just like a big roly-poly teddy bear to me. <laughs> he was just like any other hoodlum. He was lovable. He was sweet. Who do you think murdered your husband? Al Capone did. But those witnesses to history would have to wait, because there's still more exposition to be told. According to survivors of that era, he could be a genial, even charismatic guy. Quick with a joke and generous with a buck, but dominant was his dark side, his attraction to physical violence, his quick, explosive temper, his ability to commit cold-blooded murder. He was, of course, Scarface Al Capone, America's public enemy number one. Well, with a description like that, I'm kind of surprised Capone never ran for public office. We then get a description of the hotel as though we're watching a primordial version of the shows that you would find on HGTV. Now picture this hotel as it was when Al Capone lived here, truly an elegant and classy place. Hanging from the ornate ceilings were crystal chandeliers, while along these arched walls were fine art, lots of art. The floor was covered with ornate and beautiful tile mosaics. But Capone still transformed this place into a haven for crime and vice. On this week's edition of This Old Criminal Headquarters, we take a look at this turn of the 20th century hotel where a former crime lord more than likely contracted his syphilis while gunning down his competition. Don't forget to wear your safety glasses, your bulletproof vests, and of course, bag it up, son. <laughs> But we're not here to discuss decaying hotel facades, are we? Now what, if anything, this vault contains, we have no idea. But we're going to find out tonight, because we're going to take this wall down. It's about 5,000 pounds, the concrete is 22 inches thick, it's coming down tonight. Now, as these fellows are hooking the chains up to the bobcat, we're going to take our first short commercial break. But don't go away, because when we come back, that wall's coming down. After showing viewers around the area where demolition crews clear everything out around the vault, Geraldo reminds us that Capone was one of the biggest tax cheats of all time, pending further news about other people in the future. Just wait. And that somebody would be standing by just in case Scarface left one of those millions behind. Dennis, I understand that your office has placed a lien against anything of value that we might find. Today. Right. We have a judgment for taxes that Capone owed in the late 20s and early 30s. Right now, with uh, tax penalty and interest, it's around $800,000. He owes $800,000, so you guys are here first in line right. in case we find anything. Right. And before you ask, yes, dead people still have to pay back taxes albeit at the expense of either the person's estate or the deceased's next of kin. Which, now that I think about it, kind of brings new meaning to that song from Big Mouth. No one is truly happy, and it doesn't get any better when you're dead. <laughs> but let's get back to the point. 
Without further ado, let's take the wall down. Let's go, take it down. Let's go. The vault that we've indicated as being basically hollow stretches forever, so the only way we're going to get inside and empty this place out before our two hours are up is starting uh, another team of workers here. So we've brought out the heavy artillery. When we come back, the excavation work is going to continue. Stay tuned, because one way or another, the secret is now being uncovered. Okay, let's go, Winston. So the wall is torn down, and naturally, there's some more digging to do which we pick up on Act 3, but not without diving more into Capone's biography, as well as a 1920s version of a Think of a Children type story. As the inaugural day of the National Prohibition Act drew ever closer, many Americans went into a drinking frenzy, loading up on the last of their legal drinks. Then the party was over. Okay, now you're just begging me to play clips from The Simpsons. What kind of pet shop is filled with rambunctious yahoos and hot jazz music at 1 a.m.? The best damn pet shop in town! Yeah! But if Geraldo and company can find ways to kill time before the inevitable letdown, so can I. One of those ways to kill time was with an interview with a Prohibition survivor. Do you think there's any linkage between Prohibition, the 18th Amendment, and growth of organized crime, the rackets? <laughs> I think organized crime has been here with us, you know, for a long time. I don't think you can lay it at Prohibition's door. Uh, some other thing would have been blamed for it if it hadn't been for Prohibition. And that's, well, let's get back to the vault where Geraldo is interviewing an expert on organized crime whose name is not Elliot Stabler. I said that uh, in the video piece we just saw that Capone was the the real godfather of organized crime. Can that be said with accuracy in your oh, experience? Oh, I think so. I think he saw the potential of a, of a unified organization, and therefore he made those come under his control, and those who did not, he killed or ran out of town. And again, this is all interesting information for those who are history buffs who feel like they want to know everything. But to everybody else watching, it seems a little suspect that we're now about a third of the way through the show, and aside from some vintage liquor bottles and mini documentaries, we haven't seen anything else of interest that would keep us from changing the channel to Scarecrow and Mrs. King on CBS. When we come back, you'll get acquainted with an indispensable tool of the 1920s, the Tommy Gun. Not sure why we would want to hear the history of director James Gunn's long-lost brother Tommy, but... Oh! Oh. That Tommy Gun. In that case, we can start Act 4 with a look at where Capone and his crew did a little target practice. And during that time, what better weapon to hit what you were aiming at than this one? The Thompson submachine gun. Most civilians call it the Tommy Gun. The mob called it the typewriter. And as you know, with it, they wrote a bloody tale of terror. If the Colt was the weapon that won the West, they say this was the weapon that made the 20s roar. Okay, I, I've been patient only so much. Do we really care about any of this? I know TV shows are supposed to tease and entice their viewers, but if I wanted to learn the history of a weapon, I'd get a subscription to Guns and Ammo. Please get to the point. Just a few miles west of downtown Chicago and the Lexington Hotel lies Cicero. In 1923, the year the, the vault. Named get to the vault. Cicero we don't care about this stuff. That newspaper editor is now the distinguished author and journalist, Robert St. John. Welcome. We don't want to hear about the guy who helped shut down Al Capone's brothels. 
For the record, though, plenty of them did relocate down here in hell in the 1930s. And that's... All hell facts. Talking about six decades ago, it's just checked into our excavation process. We've hit an obstacle back there, but don't worry, we have some drastic remedies to take care of it. Stay tuned, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna continue this search after these commercial messages. Great, the construction process is stalled again. Got any more educational videos you want us to sleep through? Flowers and murder. It must be a gangland tradition. Well, on this site back in the 1920s, stood one of the mob's favorite suppliers. We don't care about the mob's favorite flower shop. We care about the vaults. Al Capone's success, in, let's back up, there won't be able to hear Al Capone's success in avoiding arrest and prosecution lay in large part, let's keep backing up, they won't hear me on his ability to, uh, to bribe, uh, to bribe the, the cops. But finally, in uh, 1928, the U.S. Treasury Department assigned a 26-year-old incorruptible special agent. One task and one task alone, and that was getting Capone. I'm sure you'll remember this, but actor Robert Stack brought him into all of our living rooms. <sighs> okay, fine, I'll let you have this segment, but not because the wrecking crew is still digging, but because I'm actually interested in what this next guy has to say. His name was Tony Berardi, a Chicago-based photographer who documented the period in Capone's crime spree where he was being pursued by the real Elliot Ness and his untouchables. Let me ask you this, who'd you like better, Elliot Ness or Al Capone? Al Capone. How come? Because I knew what Al Capone was, Elliot Ness. I, he was just a publicity hound in my book. He was a, a messenger boy. I get a great kick up when I see those untouchables. My God, he never fired a gun in his life. No, I haven't got too much to say about him. Well, life sucks. You can't win them all. Uh, how's work in the vault coming along? As you can see, we have a, encountered a very substantial obstacle. It's a limestone wall. We semi-suspected it because there are limestone walls on both sides. Now, uh, what we're going to do is uh, something fairly radical. Come on, Don, let's get out of here. Uh, here's Sherwin uh, Tarnoff, the man who uh, taught me how to use the Tommy gun. He's also an explosives expert. He's working with uh, Dennis, which is Dennis. Okay, <laughs> take it easy. Stay and uh, what was it again? I'm oh, sorry, Jerry, right, sorry. Okay, they're both uh, explosives experts, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to take that wall down with the carefully controlled, prepared explosive. So now, about halfway through the special, Geraldo is starting to realize if he burnt his bridge with ABC News too soon. And at the same time, he's probably counting a couple of figures in his head. Number one, how much time is there left in the show? Number two, how many clip packages there are left to kill time with? And number three, how much money the price of one's dignity really is, especially the amount being paid to do such a special. We pick things up in the next act with the wall ready to blow. But it's not Geraldo greeting us out of the next commercial break. Rather, an old familiar face to viewers of small claims court cases on TV, as well as the show that we just covered last week. Long time and still current People's Court reporter, Doug Llewellyn, who was not only one of the special's producers, but kind of gives proof that he had a very busy 1986. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Doug Llewellyn, and while Geraldo is busy preparing to blast the vault at the Lexington, we are here about 25 blocks north of the Lexington at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in downtown Chicago, where a gigantic Al Capone safe-cracking party is underway. A party with hundreds of people here to watch this show and to roam about a lot of Al Capone-era memorabilia.
Okay, I appreciate the effort there, Doug, but let's be real. You're as much here to kill time as Geraldo is with all the featurettes he's been playing for you for the past hour. Speaking of which, here comes another one right on cue. People are just about 30 seconds away from uh, being ready to blow the limestone wall that has blocked our progress into the uh, into the vault space. Sure, why come around in here? Uh, you guys ready? All right, now you have something else to wire up. Come on, let's do it. Let's do it on live TV. Okay, you set. Okay, what's gonna happen now? And while the promise of incendiary devices exploding was enough to wake up some of the people that were watching, was it enough to keep them tuned in? We're now in the sub-basement of City Hall. We're three stories underground, but we're not there yet. We still have further to go. No! No more time killers! We came to see gold! We came to see skeletons! We came to see bootlegging paraphernalia. We didn't come to see a travelogue. Okay, we've reached our goal. As you can see, it's a tunnel. Actually, it's a 60 mile network of tunnels. An incredible underground labyrinth that crisscrosses the entire downtown Chicago area. Come with me now on a tour of the subterranean maze. We don't care about Chicago's sewage system or wherever the fuck they are. We care about the vault. Okay, I'm gonna show you the secret tunnel. A legitimate find that we found after these commercial messages. We'll be right back. Stay there. Well, relish in that moment, Geraldo, because this is probably the only time in the special you could use the words legitimate find and get away with it. Unfortunately, that legitimate find of a secret tunnel leading to this alleged vault doesn't really lead to much. Welcome back. I'm uh, Geraldo Rivera, now standing in the only quiet place in this whole hotel, the northeast corner of the basement, where about two weeks ago we discovered a secret tunnel system. Now, here, this is the wall we took down, and this is the tunnel. If you notice up there, it's the brick and mortar construction. This is a real secret tunnel, and it's certainly big enough for Capone and his boys to use. So, in conclusion, a tunnel. So glad millions of people around the world could bask in its tunnely goodness. Uh, just, just play the next clip package, will ya? The Lexington Hotel was built in 1891. I learned later the hotel had been slated for demolition. The hotel was saved from destruction by the organization which now owns both the building and presumably whatever's found in the vault. That is, once the IRS takes a chair. That organization is called the Sunbow Foundation. I'm sorry, I, I thought I was watching something interesting. Fortunately, for the sake of being a fan of old-school Hollywood, I did find this next interview to be only slightly fascinating. One with star of yesteryear, Buddy Rogers. No relation to the wrestler of the same name who went by Nature Boy. Rogers recalls Capone as not a bad guy, but more misunderstood. And he was also in politics, it looked like to me. It certainly was. He was charming with Mother. Couldn't have been nicer. Not at all frightening to you? Not at all. He says, Mother Rogers, don't believe all these newspaper articles. I don't, I'm not a killer. I'm an... I don't want to hurt anyone, he said. In other words, Capone was the Eddie Haskell of his day to some. Look, Shrimp, you start slobbing over me and I'll slug you one. Yeah, sure, Eddie. I mean it. <laughs> but enough about the softer side of Capone. We've got more digging to do. Nothing really new and exciting to report yet. We're still digging. So, more nothing. Great. 
And what about when we return from the commercial? Because of his notorious reputation, Al Capone could not find a second home. As you can imagine, no city in the country really wanted the guy. Finally, because of Florida's unique real estate laws, Capone's attorneys were able to buy this secluded mansion without revealing who the real purchaser was. Who cares if Capone moved to South Florida? Scarface Al Capone was a legal Miami resident. The original Miami Vice. Uh, no. That's not how cops work. Miami Vice was about two cops from Miami fighting crime as cops tend to do. Calling Al Capone the same thing as Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas may be the most egregious statement made in this special. And considering nothing of any significance has been dug up yet, that's saying a lot. We then get to learn about one of the more notorious moments in gangland history. Early on the morning of February 14th, St. Valentine's Day, a police squad car pulled up on Clark Street across from the warehouse. Inside were four men. Two in plain clothes, two wearing police officers' uniforms. They left their car, walked across the street, and entered the warehouse, where seven of Bugs Moran's men were waiting for an illegal liquor delivery. Bugs was supposed to be there, but arriving late, he saw what looked like police officers entering his building. Wisely, he decided to stay down the block, watching, waiting, listening. Well, he didn't have long to wait. Fucking riveting. At this point in the proceedings, I'm now occupying my time by watching the seconds to this special countdown one by one. So, how's the digging coming along now? As if I cared. Now, when we come back, aside from updating you on the digging that continues even as I speak, we're going to show you a little reported side of, of Scarface Al. Nobody cares! Least of all, nobody cares if a criminal does a good deed or two to make up for the hundreds of thousands of bad deeds he did in the long run. Can somebody please show us something interesting? Al Capone may have been a murdering animal, but he was also a cunning businessman. One acutely aware of the need for good public relations. I could make another joke about wondering what if Capone ran for public office, but that's such low-hanging fruit that it's practically touching the dirt by this point. He was the kind of guy, for example, who often gave Apple vendors $10 tips. He bought blocks of baseball tickets for entire Boy Scout troops, and he lobbied successfully for a milk dating ordinance to ensure that Chicago's kids would never be forced to drink spoiled milk. Okay, so basically Capone was Richard Nixon if Richard Nixon drank and killed once in a while. Got it. Get to the digging! Okay, uh, we're still digging. Nothing to write home about yet. But, uh, we've still got 23 minutes. Who knows? Fuck! Okay, there's 23 minutes left. Please do something that will make this show worth watching. On October 24th, 1931, Al Capone was found guilty of deliberately evading the payment of federal income tax. And while some of us wish for a sequel of sorts from certain individuals in this day and age, guess who? It really doesn't do much to help improve the quality of this special. That is until... In the summer of 1934, though, that all came to an end when Capone joined 52 of Atlanta's most dangerous and hardened prisoners on a special heavily guarded prison train. Its destination, Alcatraz. Oh, thanks Satan, some wiggle room. I get to use Nicolas Cage references in this segment. Authorities were so worried about an attempt to spring Capone that the prisoners never left the closely guarded cars. They were rolled onto a barge and towed to Alcatraz Island. Do you like the Elton John song Rocket Man? I don't like soft ass shit. Well, I only bring it up because, uh, it's you. You're the rocket man. 
Al Capone first set foot on this 12-acre rock right in the middle of San Francisco Bay, he must have felt a sense of foreboding. You go talk to him. Me? Yeah. Hiya. I'm an agent with the uh, FBI. I'm Stanley Goodspeed. But of course you are. The island is surrounded by barbed wire, sewer outlets, and utility tunnels which open to the water were blocked. And then there's the swift, cold currents of San Francisco Bay. Losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. Unfortunately, all the cool points Sean Connery could give us stands no match for what would turn out to be the show's inevitable and unfortunate conclusion. I don't quite know how to tell you this at uh, eight minutes to the hour, but we found another wall in there. I wonder if I could get a deposit on a 60-year-old bottle. All right. We'll be right back after these commercial messages. We'll see what we got here. And for that, we go back to the digging for the final minutes. You know, uh, when we began opening this vault nearly two hours ago, we had no real idea what we'd find inside. As it turns out, we haven't found very much, at least not, uh, not yet. Well then, allow me now to pull up a clip from another great movie with Sean Connery. This one, though, I think is slightly more relevant. Take it away, Bobby. You know, fuck, you got nothing. Not a lot of talking of that. You're here because you got nothing. You got nothing in court. You don't got the bookkeeper. You got nothing. Nothing. And if you were a man, you would have done it now. You don't got a thing, you punk. And that's exactly what this special ends with. A whole lot of nothing. A kind of nothingness that Geraldo tries to justify. I hope you've enjoyed the adventure of the chase. You know, to briefly review, we found some bottles, we found, we found some other artifacts, the tunnels, uh, or rather the vaulted space, did date back to uh, the time of Scarface Al Capone. Uh, but, I don't know, our seismic or sonic tests must have uh, been uh, slightly awry because we didn't find the uh, much-heralded hollow spaces that we were led to believe were in there. Um, so, uh, what can I say? I'm sorry, I would thank my buddies here for doing the job. Uh, thank you for watching. I promised all the critics that if we didn't find anything, I'd sing a song. So, uh, uh, Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. All right, I'm going. I'll see you. Good night. I'm sorry. And as a final exclamation time. point as to how little they wound up with, the show sees itself closing out with as much as three minutes of closing credits to ring out the time on this debacle. Meanwhile, with his tail between his legs, what Geraldo thought would be his big career comeback turned out to be as metaphorical and as figurative as the empty vault of Al Capone. Or was it? Well, as it turns out, hell wouldn't be hell without a dose of something called the Peter Principle where one tends to rise to their level of incompetence. Employees are promoted based on their success in previous jobs until they reach a level at which they are no longer competent, as skills in one job do not necessarily translate to another. And sure enough, it happened to Geraldo. And at this point, we're going to let the man himself tell the rest of the story via an interview with the Television Academy. I knew that I had wrecked my reputation, that I had fallen into the trap where I was exactly the caricature that everyone said I was and I'd never work again in the business and then uh, opened the door the next day to the room service guy he pushes in he sees me looking down he says don't worry son they're not gonna blame you for the bad news <laughs> he handed me 22 messages I had uh, 22 job offers the next day so you know what was the low point of my career became the start of a whole new career well 
I never thought I or any other being, either living or dead, would actually say this and mean it. But, well, fair is fair. Thanks, Geraldo. This makes my job a lot easier. So, where does the mystery of Al Capone's vaults get locked up in Telehell? For that, we need to go even deeper than the sub-basement of an old Chicago hotel, which just happens to be in our nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery! This show tried to be a shipload of hype, only for the ship to turn out to be a rowboat. One of those cases where something was both a massive failure and a massive success at the same time. As Geraldo just mentioned, millions of people around the world watched it. And while I'm sure those who tuned in for the historical information got something out of it, most of the rest of the people felt ripped off by watching it at the same time. An easy perpetration for fraud towards the viewers who, despite still being entertained, also felt a sense of wrath after ultimately getting let down. While at the same time, those very viewers wound up gluttons for punishment having sat through two hours of nothing. Also, because of the big ratings it pulled in, the Tribune Company was able to parlay that unexpected success-slash-failure hybrid into an increased amount of ad revenue that would inevitably help them increase their profile in syndication, up to and including hiring Geraldo to do his long-running daytime talk show a few years later, at what I can only assume was an oversized price tag. No matter how good the intentions were there, greed is greed. And all because a bunch of TV executives felt it would be good TV to help glorify the life of a man who waged a sea of violence back in his heyday. To say nothing of his countless prostitution rings. So a lateral move for lust. Just another day in my kind of town, Chicago is. The mystery of Al Capone's vaults earned six out of nine circles of telehell. Anybody who uses the internet endlessly should know what clickbait is. It's that thing where you see a link that promises something shocking if you just click here. Well, that's what this show was. A two-hour-long clickbait TV program that, because it was on live TV, you had no control over it aside from changing the channel. And once you reach the end of the show, you feel annoyed over all the time you just wasted from watching it. 35 years after this aired, it's both humbling and concerning to show that some things, unfortunately, never change. Hell, even good TV shows have managed to learn a thing or two from this one. You know how most reality TV shows annoy us with teases to the commercial break? Well, that would probably never happen twice as often were it not for Al Capone's faults needling its viewers first. Thankfully for the passage of time and the rise of instant gratification, there are those who use common sense to change the channel to something a little more interesting once in a while. Then again, there are others who continuously let similar crap fester like an untreated skin disorder for years and years. But since some of those shows are still on the air, they have to wait their turn to get burned by us. Until that time comes, all we can do is heed the wise words of the great Leonard Nimoy. It's all lies, but they're entertaining lies. And in the end, isn't that the real truth? The answer is no. And not for nothing, but that disclaimer should be put at the front of all reality television shows. Kind of surprised they don't do that by now. Okay, that's it. End of season three.
Now all that remains is... <laughs> like clockwork. Let me guess. It's that time again. Well, you seem to be in a chipper mood. Of course I am. The season's over, and I think I've been down here long enough to know what the routine is by now. I finish the season, you call me down to the boss's office for my annual evaluation, you tell me I can't jump off my ledge because of something to do with the lava lake not working. It's a pretty standard routine by now. Slow your roll, honey. Yeah, you do need to get yourself down here. But that's not the only reason I'm calling. Well, what else is there? You're also right in thinking that jumping off the ledge is off the table again. Unfortunately, we've been using the lake to burn up all the remaining COVID residue from those who refuse to get the shot. So, you know, unless you want to take part in the world's worst game of crowd surfing, I wouldn't advise it. Of course. So, what faulty mode of transportation do you need me to come down in this time? Wait a minute. What makes you think we're going to do that again? Because I had to walk by foot the first year, and then you gave me that defective skateboard last year, so I think the only natural progression would be a pogo stick with a spring missing or something. Have you never watched The Odd Couple when you were alive? What happens when you assume? <sighs> you make an ass out of you and me. Exactly. Besides, what I've got for you is actually a step up in comparison. Like what? A Ford Pinto? No. The boss and some of his construction goons installed a new elevator. Apparently. Hell, just now needs to be compliant with the Disabilities Act of 1963. <laughs> Thank you, bureaucracy. Anybody who loses a limb on their body while down here gets to use the elevator. No questions asked. Well, I have both my arms and legs. What does this have to do with me? You were randomly selected by the boss to be his guinea pig. All you gotta do is ride the elevator for a while and undergo a couple of stress tests just to make sure it works properly. It should take a little over a month to do. And by the time you're done, we'll send you down to the ground floor just in time for your progress report. And that's when? July 11th. And all I have to do is ride in an elevator for a few weeks. That's it. Eh, what the hell. I can use a change in scenery. Where's the elevator? Down the hall and to the right. And if you have any questions during the trip, you can buzz me on the elevator's intercom. Well, it is an elevator. It's definitely a step up from walking. How bad can a month and a half inside an elevator be? Huh. It looks like any other elevator I've ever been on when I was alive. Except all the four buttons say either six or thirteen. Wait, so which one's the ground floor? It's the only button that doesn't look like a 6 or a 13. Also, the boss wants you to push all the buttons. Stopping on every floor is part of the stress test. But whatever you do, don't step off the elevator until you reach the bottom. Otherwise, we'll have to start the test all over again. Fair enough.
Wait a minute. There's only nine circles of hell. How come there's thousands of buttons? Don't question it. This is the afterlife. Jeez, you'd think they'd spring for an oil can or something. Oh, my mistake. The boss left the parking brake on. Say why? Honey, there's still about 39,000 floors to go. You'll be fine. I want my money! Should have brought a helmet with me! are in this place. The part of the devil's secretary was played by Joan Bishop. <laughs> and before we forget, super special thanks to Mr. Mike Porter for being the voice of Telehel this season. He's that British guy that you hear announcing the beginning of the show. Look for him at Fiverr.com if you're looking for a deep British voiceover. Hell will return on July 11th with our annual recap show, and we're also going to be doing something very special, so tune in for that. <laughs> and now, as I lose my lunch all over this elevator, here are the rest of the credits. <laughs> Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. Running out of comedic noises to make as the elevator's moving up and down this fast! All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976. <laughs> and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Suck it, Twilight Zone, Tower of Terror, right at Disneyland! Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Oh, this can't be good for my digestive system! Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds, Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn! This season of Telehell was dedicated to the memory of Lois Kaplowitz. We love you, we thank you, and we miss you. My 
brains are going into my feet! <laughs> 